Okay, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 to 8. All right, let's read it together. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find them, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it ro- and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to the country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mika, for reading and praying with us. You'll notice that we have a much uh, shorter pulpit now. Uh, it's not vanity, okay? It's so that I can read everything without my reading glasses. And uh, you might say, well, that's obviously vanity because you don't want to wear glasses. It's not so much that I don't want to wear them. It's that I don't want to have to put them on, take them off. They, they distract you and me. You're all waiting for me to throw them somewhere or step on them or whatever. And I'm expecting something like that or I'll poke my eye out when I try to put them on. So this way, I just don't have to use them. So that's why, uh, why it's shorter. It's going to be really hard for Kevin to preach from it, but most people who, uh, who preach are not six foot 14 or whatever he is. So... Um, there is a, a principle in Scripture interpretation, Bible interpretation, that says Scripture interprets Scripture. And all that really means is that, that the Bible is the best interpreter of the Bible. Uh, so in John chapter 1, verse 11, for example, it says that Jesus came to those who were, not, who were his own, that which was his own, and yet... They did not receive him. What does that mean? Who are the, his own that John is talking about in his gospel? And what does it mean that they did not receive him? Well, a good answer to that question is actually the text that we 
read this morning. Our text is, is like a commentary on John 1 verse 11. It explains to us three types of people who did not receive the Messiah who came. There's Herod, there's the crowds or just the inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem, and then there's the chief priests and the teachers of the law or the scribes. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at this passage and we're going to look at how each of these different types of people failed to receive God. And they've failed to receive Jesus, I should say, failed to receive Jesus for different reasons. And then we're going to make some applications for us as modern people, what in the world that means. So the first group of people we're going to look at is actually these, these teachers of the law and these chief priests. Now, who are these people? Herod hears, hears about the coming of this new king of Jerusalem. And so he calls these two different groups of people together. He calls these chief priests and he calls these teachers of the law because he wants to hear from them about this king, any news that they may have and any insight that they may have about who this guy is and where he's coming from, what he should expect from him, etc. Now, the chief priests, they're the Sadducees, the political leaders of uh, the people of Israel at the time. You'll remember that, uh, perhaps you'll remember anyway, that, that the nation of Israel is not its own nation state right now. It is being ruled by Roman overlords who have conquered much of the known world by this point, including the state of Israel or Palestine. And so the chief priests were sort of the political liaison between the people of Israel who lived in Judea and these Roman masters that they were subject to. And that made them very unpopular at times with the regular people because they, they were seen as like the elites, the political insiders. Okay? And they were certainly disliked by the other group of people that Herod invites to the palace to talk to. And that's the teachers of the law. The teachers of the law were the experts in Torah. They were the experts in the first five books of Moses. Uh, and they interpreted the law of God. And they led the people of Israel in how they were to supposed to worship God and uh, please Him. And they did not like these chief priests. So these are two groups that do not like one another at all. The, the chief priests think that the teachers of the law are stuck in the mud, kind of uptight people who are trying to control uh, the, the, the people of, of Jerusalem and Judea. And the teachers of the law, they don't like the chief priests because they think they're just basically sellouts to the uh, pagan overlords that they're serving. And they come together and Herod says, all right, what do you know about this coming king that I'm hearing about. And interestingly enough, they agree on what they know about this coming king. They say in verse 6, they quote, sorry, they say he's going to be born in Bethlehem in Judea, and they quote a prophecy from the prophet Micah in the Old Testament. Verse 6, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by, are by no means least among the, uh, the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Okay. These guys all know their Bibles very well, clearly. And they're all expecting a Messiah to come eventually. And they all know where that Messiah is supposed to show up. So they know where they're supposed to look for this Messiah. But here's what's very interesting. After this statement 
that is made in verse 6 that the uh, chief priests and the teachers of the law, they quote the Old Testament, these guys disappear. They're gone. You don't hear about them in this story anymore. They don't, they don't do anything. They don't follow up on this prophecy. They don't go and check it out for themselves. They don't, they don't find the magi and say, hey guys, can we come with you to this place that you're, you're looking for, uh, the, this Messiah? They don't seem to want to learn any more about him. I, I guess they just went home. But interestingly enough, through the Gospels, when you read the rest of Matthew and you read all of Mark and Luke and John, what you discover is, is that these religious leaders are always the last people to receive Jesus. They're the most skeptical. They're the most threatened by him, it seems. They're the last people to actually receive Jesus. And the point is, oftentimes, it is the most religious people who don't truly receive God's Messiah. You can be raised in church, go to Grace Kids or some Sunday school elsewhere. You can take all kinds of education classes and Bible studies and, you know, you can go to Mark's Old Testament class or you can come to my worldview class and you can get lots of theology and philosophy and and know all this stuff in your head. You could even uh, go to a Christian day school and be raised uh, learning about the Bible from the time you're like this big and still not receive or accept God's Messiah. How in the world does that happen? Christianity, friends, is unique as as a religious faith. And it's, it's unique in a bunch of different ways. And one of the ways it's unique is in that to receive the truths of God as described for us in Scripture is not simply to assent to a set of doctrines. It's not simply to know certain things about God that are explained in the Bible. One of the scariest, in my mind, verses in the Bible is James chapter 2, verse 19. James says this, He says, you believe that there is one God, good. The demons do too, and they shudder. Demons are very good theologians, friends. They they know a lot about who God is. They know a lot about who Jesus is. They know Jesus' identity before anybody else knows. You ever notice that? Every time Jesus comes across a a demon-possessed person, uh, right away the demon goes, whoa, 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 what do you want with me, son of God? It's not time yet. You're not supposed to be coming after me yet. They know a lot about what the Messiah has come to do and and when he's going to do it. They are very astute theologians. They assent to many truths about this Jesus, but they have not received him clearly. What does it mean to receive Jesus? Well, I said that in John 1, it says that to those who, uh, or sorry, that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him, but it goes on in verse 12 of John 1, yet to all who did receive him, who believe on his name or in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so to, be, to receive Jesus means to believe in the name of Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Last week, right? Emmanuel. 
That's the name of Jesus. He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. His name will be called Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. To believe in the name of Jesus simply means that you put your trust in Jesus. You believe that he is who he says he is. He is God in the flesh come into the world to live for you, to die for you, to pay the penalty for your sin, that if you put your trust in him, you no longer experience God's disfavor, his condemnation, but rather you experience his welcome into his family. I had a professor in seminary who used to say that the longest distance in the universe is the 14 inches between the human brain and the human heart. That's, I guess, the average. And what he was saying is, is it's, it's very hard for people who maybe have understood intellectually things about who God is and who Jesus is to actually accept him, to trust him. You can know all kinds of stuff about him, but never have actually put your trust in him. You know, like let's say you need surgery. You've been diagnosed with a tumor. You got a tumor somewhere and you need surgery. And so you go and see the surgeon and you, you visit with him and you ask him a whole bunch of questions. You say, so where did you get your uh, degree? Oh, I got it at U of T doctor school. Because that's a thing, for sure. U of T doctor school. And you say, ooh, that's pretty good doctor school. Okay. Uh, what were your marks? Well, I got straight A's. Can I see your transcripts? Sure, here they are. Oh, very impressive, very impressive. Have you ever done these surgeries before? Oh, yes, I've done multiple surgeries. Uh, and how did they go? Oh, they went very, very well. Prove it. Okay, come to my website here. Look at all my testimonies of former patients. Ah, yeah, but you may have paid them. Okay, let's go to Google Reviews. I'm 4.8 out of 5 on Google Reviews. That's pretty good for a surgeon. And you finally say to yourself, boy, you know, you've given me a lot of evidence that you certainly are an excellent surgeon. I believe you. I trust in you. And he says, all right, hop up here on the table. <laughs> no thanks. You're not trusting in the surgeon until you let him actually do his surgery. Until you act in faith. Until you allow yourself to be surgeried, operated on. You're not trusting. And the same is true in relationship to Jesus. You're not trusting Jesus just because you know that he is the son of God. Just because you've been convinced that Jesus must really be different from all other human beings. Like we talked about last time. He is the God man. He is Superman. He is God in the flesh. And he has done amazing things. Just because you know those things. If you're not, if you're not living every day in trust for that. If you're not waking up in the morning and saying, yes, I know I'm a guilty sinner. But I will not, not, not be weighed down by the guilt of my sin because I will look at my Savior Jesus and be reminded that he has washed away every sin I have and that the God of the universe delights in me despite the fact that I never, ever, ever live up to his standards or even my own. That's what it means to receive him. And I'm in a room full of people who, some of you I would hope, are religious are into spiritual things. Believe in things like an, a, 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 an unseen spiritual world behind the physical world we can see with our eyes. And I am simply just pleading with you that you understand what it is to truly believe in Jesus, that it is not just to know things about him and be able to recite the Apostles' Creed. It's fundamentally to trust him every day so, 
That's the first group of people, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. What about the second group of people? You can easily miss this group, but they're an important group. It's basically the general population of Jerusalem. See, when the Magi come, and we'll learn more about the Magi next week, I think. I hope. When the Magi come, well, you've got to understand, these guys, well, first of all, they're, they're not kings, okay? They're, they're very wise advisors to kings. They're a lot like Daniel would have been in Babylon. And when, when they would have come into Jerusalem, they would have not just sort of snuck in uh, like low-key. They would have had an entire entourage, okay? They would have had servants, they would have slaves, they, they would have, you know, soldiers with them who had protected them on their journey. Maybe they have like those, those carriages or whatever that, uh, you know, people carry and then you sit in it and you eat your grapes or whatever as a, as a very rich and fancy person in those days. There would have been an entire entourage with them and the whole city would be abuzz with the arrival of these magi. And in fact, the whole city was abuzz with the arrival of these, this, uh, magi, of these magi. And the general population of Jerusalem, they would have known, they would have heard what happened in the palace when they came there and then the chief priests and the teachers of the law are gathered there and they have this big uh, sort of conference between all these different people. The people would have heard. And we know that they heard because it says in verse 11, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And then it says, and all Jerusalem with them. That word disturbed, it could be the word anxious, it could be the word worried, it could be the word deeply concerned. It's not just disturbed. It's, it's like, uh-oh, we got a problem here. That's what it means. Now, why would all Jerusalem be worried? I mean, it's one thing for King Herod to be worried because he's freaking out that there's someone who's going to take his throne away from him. Sort of understandable, but, but the people, why would they be so scared of it? Well, they were afraid of Herod. See, Herod was, well, I'll tell you a bit more about this in a minute, but Herod was a very violent, a very cruel, a very vain leader. And he certainly felt threatened about this Jesus who may be coming. And, and the people were afraid that this, hit, this Herod, who was now threatened because of an, a, a, a challenger to his throne, that he would take this out on the city, that he would hurt the people of the city, and he does. The people hated Herod, but they feared Herod as well. And if they were to ally themselves with this new king that, that has ridden into town that they don't know much about, then, well, they're putting their lives at risk. Because if the competitor doesn't succeed in knocking the old guy off the throne, the old guy's going to come back with a vengeance and he's going to take it out on all the people who didn't choose him. And so what are they doing? They're disturbed and they're rejecting Jesus, the Messiah, because of their desire for survival. And you know, from the very start, friends, from the very beginning, Jesus does something in his coming. What do I mean by that? You know, we, 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 like, to, we like to romanticize Christmas a lot, right? You know, like I've, done, I've said this before, chestnuts roasting on an open fire, you know, cuddled up with hot chocolate or something, and we think of the manger and this, this just warm, fuzzy feeling of Jesus or Joseph and Mary cuddling Jesus and he's cooing nicely and you know, when the, when the cows and the chickens and they all make their noise, Jesus, of course, no crying does he make because he's the perfect baby. And it's okay to have these kind of pictures in your mind, I suppose. But Jesus himself said, look, do not believe, do not think, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. 
This is out of Jesus' own mouth. What does he mean by that? He says, I've come to divide people. My coming will divide people. You will have to choose who you're going to ally yourself with. Are you going to align yourself with me and my kingdom or are you going to remain in the kingdom that you find yourself in now? And you see, it's a a risk to put your trust in Jesus Christ. It's a risk because you see, you could find yourself rejected by family, by friends, by uh, your coworkers, people who have known you for many, many years in your life. And, And now because you're believing this crazy, weird idea that this Jesus is actually the Son of God and you've been living in this secular culture for a really long time where where, uh, making fun of Christianity is just sort of part and parcel of what we do because ha ha ha, we know that that's just a silly old myth from many, many years ago. And so if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you could find yourself facing a lot of trouble. I know a sister in this congregation right now who is facing a ton of trouble because of her faith. She doesn't have a family of faith and that family has seen changes in this person that that caused them frustration. And so they challenge that faith or or they mock that faith. You maybe haven't experienced that but, but some people most certainly do. You go to other places in the world and it's a big deal. If you go into a Muslim country and you convert to Christianity, you better hide or get out of there fast. And if you've never ever had any kind of trouble because of your faith, you got to ask yourself, why not? Jesus, Jesus is showing us here, look, look, you get problems when I become your king. Problems that you would not otherwise have to deal with. Because you see, Jesus as a king, he's not like, you know the constitutional monarchies that we're familiar with? Basically one of them, Britain. Elizabeth was their queen for many, many years. Charles is their king. What does it mean for the day-to-day life of your average Britonian? Brit, that's what it is. It doesn't mean an awful lot to the, to the average Brit what, how they live their lives day by day because it's a constitutional monarchy. The, the king does not actually make laws and enforce laws and all that kind of stuff. They're a figurehead. They're an important one. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying I don't like the monarchy. I'm just saying it has no effect on the day. This is your king. King Charles is your king. Most of you, if you knew that at all, thought to yourself, what's the point? It means nothing to me. But that's not the kind of king Jesus is. Jesus is a king who demands absolute allegiance. Jesus is a king who says, if you want to follow me, you might have to say goodbye to some of the closest people in your lives. Listen, I I told you what he said about, I have come to bring a sword. Listen to these words from Matthew chapter 10. He goes on and he says this. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Why? Why? This is why. Jesus continues and he says, anyone who loves their father or mother more than, he, that more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Brothers and sisters, 
If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have said yes to these words. You have said, yes, I love you more than I love my spouse. I love you more than I love my children. And if you're from the secular world and you hear Christians talk like that, you understandably say to yourself, they're nuts. Those of us who have been raised in the church and been taught to love Jesus above everything else all our lives, it makes complete sense that you would hear those words and go, yeah, 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 of course, die to myself, take up my cross daily. Mother-in-laws never got along with daughter-in-laws anyway, and so that's just one of the things we expect, and, and, and it's, it's no big deal. But if you come from outside the faith and you hear these words, you have to wrestle with the truth. Are they true? Because if they're not true, these are the words of a madman. Jesus is an absolute monarch. He's not King Charles just in older clothing. Last one. Herod. Herod didn't receive Jesus either. Just a couple of details about Herod. First of all, Herod wasn't even a Jew. He was an Edomite. (laughs) Uh, But he got this job serving... Rome as the king of the Jews. And the reason he did that was because he was extremely ambitious. He started out just as a governor of Galilee, this little territory there. His brother-in-law was running Judea and Jerusalem. You'll remember that he dies and Herod marries his sister. His uh, sister-in-law gets John the Baptist pretty upset. But because he's so ambitious, he gets raised up to this position. But he was a tyrant. Even though he's able to schmooze Rome in order to get this, uh, this plum post, he craved power. And so he, if he heard of any rivals to his power, if there was anybody trying to, to do a coup d'etat, man, he had them wiped out. He even had two of his own sons killed because he thought that they were trying to take over his power. He was incredibly insecure. So much so, and he knew the people hated him so much, that he decreed that when he dies, that his soldiers were supposed to kill all the, the bureaucrats and, and political leaders in the city of Jerusalem in order to guarantee that there would be a great outcry of mourning uh, when he passed. Now, he feels threatened, and he cannot lose control. He's terrified of losing control in his power. So what does he do? He springs into action. In verse 8, it says, He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search and carefully, uh, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Why does he want to do that? Well, he says he wants to worship him because actually he wants to kill him. And you read, if you read a little bit later, you discover that he has every boy in the region who's two years old or younger put to death. But the strange thing is, is that Herod seems to believe the prophecy. He even says that I may go and worship him. And consider about this. Like, if, if he thought it was true, if he really thought that this was the Messiah, 
then he would know that it was, it was futile for him to actually try to oppose Jesus because the prophecy said that, that this king would rise up and he would sit on David's throne forever. And if God says something, it's going to happen. And so he would have known that it was, it was a waste of his time to try to stop this. And if he didn't believe it, if he thought it was false, why does he bother seeking Jesus out? And why does he do this horrible thing, having all these children killed? The point is this. Herod is being utterly irrational. But that's how you act when you are a slave to your idol. His idol was power, and he would do anything to keep that power, even if it made no sense at all. Like destroying these, kill, these families by killing these children. He justified his cruelty to serve his idol when he had these children killed. Because you see, friends, idols, idols can demand anything they want from you and you will do it because you have to have it. You cannot live without it. Herod could not live without this status and the power that came from being declared the king of the Jews. He could not imagine himself outside of the halls of power. And so he was willing to become what power-hungry people become when they are addicted to it. He became cruel. He became bestial. This is true throughout history. Absolute powers, absolute monarchs down through history are always cruel and, and uh, rule through fear so that their enemies, so that the, their rivals are, are cowed into obedience. And here I just told you about Jesus, hey? He's an absolute monarch. Keep a pin there. Absolute monarchs rule with fear so that their rivals cower in obedience. And Jesus declared himself an absolute monarch. In, in uh, uh, what's it called? Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Part of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe series of C.S. Lewis, there's a, there's a character in there named Eustace Stubb. Eustace. He's a very unlikable character. He loves power. He loves being the boss. He loves being the head honcho. And, and at one point in this book, he, he discovers a treasure and he, and he says, ha ha, now if I have all this money, man but he'll have to do what I say. I'll be able to make people do whatever I want. I'll be in charge. And he, he finds this treasure and, and he's thinking about it and dreaming about what kind of a big man he's going to be because of this treasure and he ends up falling asleep on it. And he dreams of all this power and all this money. And he wakes up and he discovers that he is a dragon. He has turned into a dragon. And this is what C.S. Lewis says. He had turned into a dragon while he was asleep, sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart. He had become a dragon himself. It is a biblical principle that you become like what you worship. It happened to Herod. He said he wanted to worship Jesus in order that he could kill him. And here comes Jesus declaring himself as an absolute monarch, but, but he came to die, and because of that, we worship him. Herod dies clutching his power, and he is remembered as a tyrant all throughout history. Jesus gave up his power, and he is worshipped the world over. He is revered 
Because he was the king who said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. See, this is what heals the power-hungry heart. This is what heals the addicted heart. This is what heals the anxious heart. This is what heals the angry heart. This is what heals the, 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 the lustful heart. This is what heals every sinful heart. An absolute monarch who comes not to reign with fear, to reign with sacrificial, life-draining love. At one point in the voyage of the Don Treader, Eustace meets a lion. And they're talking, and the lion's like, you're a dragon. Yeah, but I'm really a boy. Oh, are you? You look like a dragon to me. I know. Well, maybe if you just take off that dragon outfit then you'll be a boy. Huh, duh. Okay, so Eustace, he tries to take off his dragon outfit and what he discovers is, is that he's still a dragon. Takes off another layer and he's still a dragon. He takes off another layer and he's still a dragon and he's getting very, very upset. There was this beautiful little pool there that, that the lion had said, you know what, if you go wash in that, you know, take off your clothes, go wash in that pool, you'll feel a lot better, everything will be better. And Eustace starts to cry because he, he can't get his clothes off. He keeps being a dragon. Drives him nuts. And finally, the lion says to him, well, you have to let, you have to let, you have to let, there we are. You have to let me undress you. Now I'm going to read from The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and I let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab off a sore place, it hurts like Billy-O, but it's such fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled this beastly stuff right off, just as though, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was, a, there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I'd had my own skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I'd turn into a boy again. That's real power, friends. There is healing in the hands of the king. I'm not talking about Aragorn. I'm talking about Jesus Christ. Power to make you something new if you would receive this king. Don't fear his threat to your power, your power. It's an illusion and it will ultimately destroy you. But if you submit to his power, you will be made 
new. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, O King, for coming into this world so that we could be made new. Help us to receive you, Jesus. Help us to submit to your authority, Jesus. Help us to trust you, Jesus. This is something that we can only do by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, do that work in us, we pray in your Son's name. Amen. Um, sermon breakout. Off you go. If you are in grade five or six, you can go to sermon breakout now uh, and meet your teacher downstairs in the dining room. Uh, the rest of us are, are going to turn to the table very soon. Oh, thank you, Lord. Um, but we do have an opportunity to take a, a question uh, or two, uh, which we like to do when we have time. And I do have one question here. How, how do I properly... Lean not on my own understanding and trust him. I am a Christian. I want to do the right thing. How do I, how do I properly lean not on my own understanding and trust him? Well, as I, as I said before, you, to trust Jesus means to actually live as though the things he says about you and about himself are true. So when you wake up in the morning and you feel like you're a piece of dirt that has no value or has any worth, you have to remember the promises of God in Jesus Christ that you were created in his image, that you are infinitely valuable because of that and because, that, because Jesus spilt his infinitely precious blood to rescue you from your sin, that you matter to Jesus, you matter to God more than you could ever understand. That's, that's what you're doing. Uh, when you go through your day and you find yourself tempted to uh, turn away from Jesus and find your satisfaction and your pleasure in something else, maybe it's in your work, maybe it's in that boyfriend or girlfriend that you have, maybe it's in your achievements as an academic, maybe it's in how much money you've been making in your business, whenever these other things try to, to, to steal the throne of your heart away from God, you have to repent, you have to remind yourself that, that God is infinitely valuable and deserving of your praise. And these other things, they, as good as they can be, it's good to do well in school. It's good to make money at your job. It's good to be in love with a boy or a girl. These are good things. But when you look to those things as the source of your identity, as the source of your satisfaction, as the place where you find your ultimate security, you've turned those things into idols and they will always, 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 always let you down. They will always let you down. And so to live every day trusting Jesus is to preach that to yourself in the middle of the temptation. See, that's our mistake. Our mistake is, is that we don't 
preach this gospel to ourselves in the midst of our day-to-day lives. Very often, we just go about our day-to-day lives. Then you come here on Sunday and you hear me try to get you going for another week. And you're like, ooh, I'm going and everything's good on Sunday and not bad on Monday and a little weaker on Tuesday, but by Wednesday, you're kind of out of gas again. So you're like, ooh, I better get back there on Sunday. Pastor Paul going to pump me up. You got to remember that the gospel is something that you live out of each and every day. And to be a follower of Jesus Christ means to preach that gospel to yourself each and every day so that believing it becomes... The default mode of your heart. Not justifying yourself, but being justified in Christ. It's habit forming. You get what I'm saying? I could go a lot longer on that. That's the best I could do for now. Because there's more. There's another question, I think. If Jesus did not... Oh, I should not read this out loud. Because what if it's crazy? (laughs) Ah! If Jesus did not come uh, for political dominance, it might seem deliberately misleading uh, that Isaiah says the government will be on his shoulders. Am I wrong? Could you explain? Um, Isaiah, you got to remember that Isaiah's prophecy is a twofold prophecy. It's prophesying not just the first coming of Christ, but it's prophesying the second coming of Christ as well. And when Jesus returns in the second coming, the government will finally sit entirely on his shoulders. But it's already on his shoulders in the sense that his kingdom is already established on this earth. You know where you find it? Right here. So his gov- the government, the government of the church, his kingdom is on the shoulders of Christ right here, right now, in this moment. Wherever people gather in the name of Jesus and submit to his authority, that is his kingdom. 